Hey everyone, it's Mark, and welcome to the Mark for Glory podcast. I'm here with my friend Josh. We're about to start episode number 26. Today we have a very special guest who I've known for a while now from the Parkinson community. He helps people there by um, working on physical therapy with them as, as well as brain training, sensory input, and other things like that, but I'll let him discuss more of that. Hi, Carl. Hey, how you doing, gentlemen? Thanks for having me, by the way. I really appreciate you having me back again. No worries. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, My pleasure. I'm wondering if we can uh, go back a bit and maybe you can talk about your early life before you got into what you're doing now. I know you were a musician. Maybe talk about that stuff and give people some background. Sure. Yeah, I, uh, so I'm 60 years old. Um, grew up in a little town called Marcellus, New York. My parents were both musicians, and I was in a, you know around music all the time. So uh, there was always a lot of musical instruments in the house. I took up the drums right away when I was about five. I got serious when I was nine. School band and all that kind of stuff. Went to school for music. Um, straight out of high school. Then I had a career as a musician for, well, let's see, full-time until 12 years ago. And then I went four more years part-time. Instead of five or six or seven or eight gigs a week, I was doing maybe one or two as I got into the business I'm into now, which is a story in itself. But I got that one down to like a one-minute deal. <laughs> a story. <laughs> Well, so it's about 35 years as a musician for a living. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, when we get to your story, there's no need to sh- shorten it down to one minute. So this okay. isn't a one minute podcast. <laughs> um, so you're, a mu- you're basically pursuing career in music, I guess, at that point. I, I was. Uh, yeah, and I was working a lot. I worked a lot in Toronto, by the way. I don't remember where, because that was back in the 90s and early 2000s. But somewhere off a young street back in the day, there were a lot of places to play, a lot of bars, clubs. So, yeah, did a lot of traveling and touring and just the United States and a little bit in Canada, but not, not outside the United States otherwise. And um, how did this, how did you start to, I'm, how did you start to think about Parkinson's? Good question. So what happened is, um, so I'm 60 now. When I was 48, um, I'm six foot two, and I weighed close to 300 pounds. I was obese. Um, and I knew it. And I, it had to do with my lifestyle, too much food, too much alcohol, uh, 
never did drugs, but you know, overindulged in all food and alcohol. So uh, in an annual physical one year, my doctor, who's a friend, scared me terribly, horribly, telling me I was, you know, pre-diabetic, um, blood sugar was way off, A1C was way off, um, high blood pressure, um, hypothyroidism, and uh, really close, close to having COPD. I was never a smoker, but I, for about 25 of those years, though, I was playing in smoky bars. So, you know, maybe 25 years, four or five nights a week of secondhand smoke probably has something to do with it. Basically, he gave me a stern, um, caring lecture, and I was so frightened, literally went out to the car in the parking lot. I was crying and um, ashamed of myself because I knew. And so I called a trainer. And I, I started with him the next day. He was also is also a dietitian, and I went cold turkey on everything, booze, straightened out my food situation, rearranged my schedule to sleep less, move more, exercise, and um, one year later I was seventy pounds lighter, and I felt a hell of a lot better. This led me to leading into a personal training the idea of personal training, I'm thinking, man, you know, I never knew what I would really want to do because I really didn't want to do music. But I mean, I'm not trying to boast, boast about me because there's nothing to boast about. I'm a good drummer and I'm very versatile. I'm not great, but I'm solid. I read music. I play all styles of music and I was dependable. I could do just about everything. Well, not great, just well. So I got a lot of work, but I didn't want to do it. But I felt so good after losing all that weight, moving better and feeling better. And like, you know, maybe I can help people. So I got National Academy of Sports Medicine's personal training certification. One year later, I went back to school at Syracuse University for nutrition. I went through the program and I lost more weight, feel really good. But it was during nine years ago, last month, my economics professor approached me and said, I've seen you at the gym. You train people. And because SU also hired me part-time to work and be a trainer. And he said, can you train me? I have Parkinson's disease. I, I was, he didn't know at the time I was really nervous, but I said, well, of course. So let's do it. But he was looking to build muscle and actually his bone mass, bone density was decreasing, which is not uncommon for a lot of people as they get older. But add a movement disorder into the mix and it can add more complications. So um, I had connections, my son being one of them who was doing his PhD at the time. And it just happened to be related to Parkinson's, although not exercise, but I call him. He directed me on where to go, who to talk to. And that started the whole thing. And I'm kind of OCD. So I dove in deep and I just started learning and reading and I started my podcast eight years ago because I had Wednesdays off. I drive to New York City every Wednesday, almost every Wednesday for one year to geek out, totally learn from neurologists, professionals who could help me learn about the brain and the nervous systems in the body. Then I went through a lot of other education, but basically um, that's how I got into it. And then it's just evolved into, I have a new, a, a clinic here I'm in. I opened four and a half months ago. 
where we work primarily with people with movement disorders, but we work with other people too, who just want to feel better, move better, lose weight. And, um, it's been a constantly evolving career and I love it so much. I love it because we can, through the concepts that I've learned and I keep learning to train people, we see people, uh, achieving results, moving better. So we think, and we, we can't say if you didn't do this, your disease would have progressed faster. However, the science shows that by doing this stuff, there's a good chance you are probably delaying the progression, but we see people moving better, reducing fall risk. And we do this in a number of ways and it's just so much fun too. Um, there's an interesting idea that I read. I told you I was reading the brain, the brain's way of healing, right? And I described this uh, line in there, and I'm wondering what you think about it. So he says something like, um, "The we often hear the words, we may hear the words incurable, progressive, degenerative, but those, those aren't so much uh, a statement on the situation. They're more of a prognosis versus diagnosis, right? Yep. And he was saying that um, whether whether we give someone false hope or we give them a false despair, right? Yeah, both, that's true. Both are, both are equally bad, right? And yeah, I'm yeah. wondering what you think about that and uh, how you approach that. Like, obviously, you want to give people hope, but still, you don't want to set them up for a fall or something. Guess what? It just so happens that in part one of two parts of my new book, which just came out late last month, it's called Parkinson's Empowerment Training. And by the way, the original painting of this hangs here in my clinic. This is painted by a dear friend, Laura Almost in Mexico. She's late 40s, lives with Parkinson's. And I'll tell you more about this later, but uh, this just came out. Chapter one is hope, belief, and empowerment. Because I really think that hope and belief will empower people. And that is so important to moving forward in anything in life. Um, I can give you a couple of examples if you don't mind. Sure. Okay, so the answer to the question is, I agree with that line, false hope or false, or, or let's say negative hope or prognosis, uh, depending upon the personality type of somebody, they might live into it and just do horribly. There are also the other personalities who might be the opposite, let's say, who they're like, well, I will not accept this. And I will just crush this and I will do better. And I'm, this will not get me, but a lot of that's personality type related. Right. But one thing we know, I can, my favorite story is about close to four years ago, I was in Mexico for the first of 12 trips in the past three and a half years. Cause I do a lot of work there. I love it there. I love the people. And, um, there was a lady I was speaking to, I was the final speaker of the afternoon and 
and I had a 90 minute window to present. There were maybe 200 people. I, I don't know, a bunch of doctors and a lot of people with Parkinson's and caregivers. So this one lady sitting up there, she's like, she's like, you know, her arms are folded and she's looking pretty standoffish. And like, I probably shouldn't want to be there, which I found out later. She didn't want to be there, but she's early forties had been living with Parkinson's since the age of about 29. Um, after the, after the session, well, during the session, I started to see her uh, facial expression, her posture and her arms changing. And she seemed to like be interested in what we were talking, me talking about. She'd never heard anything like it before. So after that, and I had to change my clothes, put on some workout stuff. We had a 45 minute slots slated for working out. And I didn't have any clue what I was going to do because there were like 50, 55 people. I'm like, what am I going to do? Because I could do so many things. But I just decided to ask, like, what are, let's say, your most common, biggest issues? Let's say for a group of you, what do you struggle with most? Um, well, for some people, it's rolling over to get out of bed in the morning. Imagine that you wake up and you have lost the ability and you must, you have to have assistance to roll over and get out of bed. That would not be a fun way to wake up, but that's a reality for, for some people out there, right? She was one of them. I didn't know this at the time. So I decided to do a workout that I call the floor is our friend. <laughs> it's a silly name, but we also know that a lot of people are afraid of the floor because maybe they've fallen and they've been injured or they're afraid they will fall for the first time or fall again and get injured. Well, the good news is if you fall and you get on the floor and you're not injured, you can use the floor to your advantage. Um, so basically what happened is this whole workout had to do with you falling down, you lay, let's say you land on your back and hopefully you're not injured. Now you need to get back to safety. And while this may sound real, real simple, the first thing we teach is how to leverage the body. And I, I didn't make any of this up. I'm not smart enough to do that. I got this from uh, one of my mentors and he got it from one of his mentors, Yanda in uh, Europe. Yanda passed away, but rolling patterns. These are like primal rolling patterns, primal movement patterns. I have two granddaughters now. One is seven months yesterday. The other one's a little over a year old. And I'm watching them develop. I'm watching them use the floor to their advantage to get up on all fours, but first to roll over back to front, front to back. Watch how they do this. Watch Nora now go from crawling to standing and now walking the past three, four weeks. So this is something that we do anyways as babies, but we a lot of times lose, let's say, certain abilities because how many of us jump, you know, sit down in a puddle and play and then just ping, you just jump up with no hands and start running around. I can't do it right now. I need to work on that. So bottom line is you go back into this re-education of using, you know, learning these skills. So for some people rolling over was not possible on the floor without assistance. And if they can't do it on the floor, they probably can't do it in bed because beds are usually not as rolling friendly as a floor, right? So I walk over to her at one point because I see that she's crying. Her name is Angelus, who's become a great friend. She and her family and me. 
I didn't know why she's crying. I said, you know, está bien, está bien. Sí, sí, gracias, todo bien. Um, estoy muy feliz. I'm very happy. All is good. Later, af way afterwards, I found out from her directly that was the first time she rolled over by herself with no assistance in five years. Five years. So she started to get interested in things during the presentation. She got on the floor. She rolled over. She went from feeling defeated and hopeless to unstoppable and optimistic. And to this day, we text at least a couple times a week. Once in a while, we'll jump on a call. I could see her daughter, you know, and her husband, because we're all friends. It, she is unstoppable. She started running again. Um, she's climbing mountains. I mean, she's doing things she wasn't doing three, four years ago because she chose to be bedridden thinking she had to be, not knowing she didn't have to be. Not everyone would experience this same result, but what happened is she found hope and the ability to move. And then she believed she could do more, which empowered her. I'm rambling because I get so excited about this stuff, but that's what chapter one is about. Because I think it's probably the most important thing, hope. Not um, a false hope, real hope. So uh, to expand on that, what do you think the difference is between someone else trying to, I mean, not necessarily preaching, but trying to give someone else hope or trying to impart hope on them and somebody believing on the inside, like having hope within them? Inside wins every time. It's got to come from within. It can help to have encouragement from the outside, especially once you're starting to get it on the inside. But just, you know, in my experience, I mean, I have a lot of experience, but I haven't had all the experiences because I can't. But I learn from people about different methodologies and concepts and techniques and strategies that might help somebody in a certain situation with a certain challenge and especially if we can show somebody how to do something again or how to do something or do something better um have them feel the difference feel let's say more confident in their balance their gait walking their uh, risk of falling maybe reducing because they know they're doing better now with balance and equilibrium and having them be able to regain even if it's a little bit or improve in some ability that often plants that first seed of hope and then you know it's like a, from there it's it can be super cool to watch um <clears throat> i was uh, reading about your the content of your books and uh um uh, there's a word that um, maybe some people don't know what it means. I, I, I'd be interested to hear how, what it means to you, neuroplasticity, and, uh, uh, and how that applies to your um, approach in helping people. This is a big one, and I'm so glad, glad you asked about it. So in both books, I talk about it. However, on page 25 of the new book, <laughs> bing, uh, maximize your neuro neuroplasticity. Um, 
new research shows it's a two-step process. You don't have to know this, but I like to know stuff because I find that I can do a better job if I know why I'm doing something and why just, I like to know the why behind things. So let's see. I'm not sure I have the definition of neuroplasticity, but basically it's the ability of the brain to change itself to, let's say there's a part of the brain that's compromised or it doesn't have to be compromised, but in Parkinson's it's like substantia nigra is the primary area that's compromised with the death of brain cells um, occurring. And this is a dopamine production center. That's a neurotransmitter we need for a lot of reasons. And one of them is so our brain can tell our, through our nervous systems, peripheral and central, what to do. You might, well, I'll get to neuroplasticity, but I, I want to get around to why this retraining of the brain is so important and what neuroplasticity plasticity actually is, uh, which I'll describe the two-step process. It's actually really simple. Um, so we want to be able to, let's say you have Alzheimer's, you want to improve memory or any kind of dementia or just anything that's comp an area of the brain is compromised. And especially if it compromises memory, cognition, or movement, and in some cases, it's all three. Then we want to work on things to re-educate the brain um, to improve these skills or, 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 you know, our abilities, cognitive memory movement. So neuroplasticity, you could define it. I'm ad-libbing here, but, um, the brain's ability to create neuro, new neural pathways as needed. What does this mean? Take the bicycle riding example, right? You say, oh, it's just like riding a bike. Well, that's a famous quote. What do they mean by that? Well, it means that once you've learned how to ride a bike, you have this neurocircuitry of neurons that have connected together, right? Like that. you have a neuron here, neuron here. And as you're riding, there's like millions of them, right? It could be different strands that fire up during the bicycle riding learning process or during any learning event. So now the synaptic firing patterns occur, one on one neuron, one on another, and eventually as they fire, because they're so close together, then they wire together. Like um, Norman Deutsch says it, and so does John Rady from Harvard. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Neurons that fire apart, wire apart. Well, we're looking at creating new abilities and skills and um, behaviors. So. This goes for behavior change too, uh, with addiction and all kinds of things. Um, coming from an addict, that would be me. Um, alcohol, I can tell you that I've had to rewire my brain to stay away from that stuff. And I've done a good job. I'm very happy. But anyways, <laughs> that's my next book. So um, it, and it's almost done. But anyways, the bottom line is these, these firing patterns her, firing patterns occur. And then now the synaptic electric electrical synapses have caused the, all these millions of neurons to wire together into a neural firing pathway. And so all of a sudden, like you practice, 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 fall, 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 get you're wobbly, wobbly on the bike, but all of a sudden, man, you go. And there we are. I remember my kids, I talk about it in the first book. 
the time I let go for each of them and they didn't know I let go, but they kept going. They knew their brain knew how to do it. They didn't know that they knew yet. They thought I was still hanging on, but that was it from there. They just, so we can do this with any time we're learning our brain is going through all these firing processes. And this is neuroplasticity at work. This is, if I'm learning Spanish and I'm not fluid yet, but I'm pretty close. And it's cool. I've done a lot of work in Mexico and South America. And it's so much fun. I've always wanted to speak another language fluently. I'm getting very close. I can have complete conversations and usually people understand me and I understand them. That is neuroplasticity. However, it's so again, let's go back. It's the brain's ability to change itself and to make new firing pathways, neural pathways as needed. So if you're trying to do something, it needs, if you're trying to learn something, it needs to make these patterns to give the ability to do this thing, whatever the thing is. But if you want, I would love to share briefly, because it's very simple, about the two-step process to maximize the learning process. Sure, go for it. Is that cool? Oh, yeah. All right. All right. This comes from Dr. Andrew Huberman at Stanford. Basically, until we're aged approximately 25, uh, I don't need the book for this. I was going to show you, but I won't show you. Up until about the age of 25, approximately, the, the brain is highly neuroplastic. So, you know, it's one of the reasons they love to have us get college done right after high school and a master's degree right after that. And because you're going to probably have the easiest time doing it then uh, for, for most people. I mean, I didn't have an easy time ever with school, but I'm different. So <laughs> that's the ADHD part. Um, but it's, it's, if you watch ki like young children, I remember I was in Mexico that first time and this, this uh, Evie Fiero took me out to dinner with some other people and she spoke English fairly well, but she's also, you know, from Mexico, speaks Spanish fluently. The next day I ran into her and a friend of hers, um, Cecilia. Cecilia is from Mexico City, I found out. And she walks in and starts per talking English like perfectly. I'm like, I feel guilty asking this, where are you from? Oh, Mexico City. You don't even have an accent when you speak English. So that's because I was around it as a kid all the time. So we spoke both languages. Well, there you go. I mean, when you're exposure alone, as Huberman says, exposure alone uh, will, will cause, especially the younger you are, just cause us to be able to learn without even thinking about it, really. It's like we're just exposed and we just get it but over the age 25 is different here's the two-step process the older we get usually the more our brain is wired a certain way so we want to change it we have to work harder and um the the process is like this step one is while you're trying to learn something do it in in short increments whether it's 30 seconds a minute two minutes 10 minutes while you're trying to learn whatever it is hyper focus do your best to not let anything distract you. Hyperfocus. Now, a couple of chemicals are going to be released during this, several, but the two, um, one is the two I'll mention goes like this. 
first one you're going to that's going to get re released that's going to cause you fatigue and the feeling of effort is called norepinephrine it's also called epinephrine but what is when it's in the brain it's referred to as norepinephrine that's a chemical that causes um the feeling of you're working you might get cognitive fatigue i do it to people in here all the time in my clinic because i want them to get fatigued after a minute two minutes whatever because we know that the brain is really working a lot during this time to help them to do what it is they want to do better so that's the first thing take a break for a minute or two and then go back and do the same thing and then take a break go back and do the same thing it's almost like reps for the brain or sets for the brain right you're lifting you do four sets of chest right boom or four sets or whatever five five sets three sets whatever it is sets for the brain take a break go back so um the second chemical that's happening which you won't feel it's called acetylcholine acetylcholine is released at the point of synapses so where the synapses are occurring is where acetylcholine goes and it marks the synaptic um neurons the fire those firing the neurons that are firing it marks those neurons for strengthening that's step one it's that simple Hyperfocus, take a break. Hyperfocus, take a break. Feel fatigued, take a break. Feel fatigued more, take a break. Now, sleep. So ideally it would be, not, not right away, it doesn't have to be right after your workout, just sleep. Hopefully there's also a chapter about managing sleep in here, which also comes from Stanford and Dr. Matthew Walker, by the way, you gotta, if you don't have it already, for those listening, get a book called Why We Sleep. Actually, have it right now. I left it to my dad to read. He has it is a, a really great book about how important sleep is for longevity and cognition and learning and, and, and overall well-being, mentally, physically, and emotionally. And I, you know, my sleep's always been good, but it's even better now. I mean, you know, I'm nine hours a night and I love it. <laughs> I don't wake up, man, until my alarm gets me. But anyways, um, sleep is where the strengthening occurs between neurons. So like you've done all this work during the day, all this work, fatigue, 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 practice, 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 could be piano, could be a language, could be anything. You're trying to learn to do this, do that, move a certain way, balance a certain way, not fall down, improve memory, improve cognition, whatever it is, you're going to feel fatigue. But when you're sleeping, those the strengthening between neurons occurs, doesn't mean you'll wake up the next day as an expert at doing whatever it is you're trying to, it might be a week, two weeks, a month later, but there will be the day when you wake up and all of a sudden you got it. It's like that. That's, I, I've had this happen. I've had people have it happen and it's like, well, good. Now we got to up the game because you're good at this. So let's get even better at something else, right? So it's, um, it's really fascinating. It's so, it's so fascinating. Um, it, so that's it. Step one, hyper-focus, pay attention. Step two, sleep. That's it. I'd also highly recommend people listen to the Andrew Huberman podcast. I've never, 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 ever learned so much as I have about the brain and the nervous system and just basically 
how our body and everything works nervous system wise and brain wise it's it's absolutely fabulous and so well articulated and easy to understand because i don't understand big words he doesn't use any <laughs> um so a few more questions uh, here so i i mean um tendency for me at least and maybe for some other people read all this stuff about how the brain can improve and all these techniques and whatever and it's great but you might tend to overlook um like you said neuroplasticity involves the changing of the brain right and we yes. tend to hype up the positive stuff and maybe ignore the negative stuff so uh, maybe you can talk about stuff like pruning and stuff like where stuff gets unused or you don't practice a skill you lose it right mm. so like let's say maybe it's sitting on the couch right or whatever it is right and gradually that becomes more and more and your neurons get better at learning how to sit on the couch right <laughs> yes they do and i know all about it because that's one of my favorite things to do <laughs> so i'm totally serious but then that's... does the urge ever enter my body to actually want to work out if i don't do it i'll get back to 300 pounds i can't do that but i have i kind of have my own solution for it and basically also in this book and I'm sorry I interrupted you. There's a quote. It's my quote. Just get started and you'll get the energy to keep going. Well, I don't mean to go on and on because I don't want to interrupt you. I'll just say this. If I get started moving, exercising, doing my taxes, seriously, my taxes, or anything, projects I don't want to do, projects I put off, if I just get started, I actually get the energy to keep going. And that's a whole different neurochemical soup process in the brain. And it just, just getting started, man. For me, that's the way I deal with it. Um, so one question, sort of, uh, it's about sleep. Now I've had some struggles with this as I know, um, a lot of other people with the neurological issues have trouble getting that uh, consistent sleep over an extended period of time, mm -hmm. right? Now I've read, I haven't read, I have why we sleep, but I haven't read it. Um, but I've listened to Matthew Walker on a few podcasts yeah. and I know the other people who say should get seven to nine hours, right? And I'm wondering how true is that for everyone? And um, how do you differentiate between quality sleep and quantity of sleep? Like does nine hours of sleep mean that, that that's optimal for the individual? I have an answer. Okay. And those are really, really good questions. 
first of all, I, I just a disclaimer, I am not a sleep expert as far as what I can give you knowledge wise. However, I'm an expert at sleeping because I'm just very good at it. <laughs> I remember sleeping in Toronto. Oh, man, this is kind of funny. I was with a group of friends and we were down near the, is the, the Capitol building. Isn't there like kind of like a round or spherical? Yeah, City Hall. Yeah, City Hall. Yeah. And I was really tired. So I'm like, can you guys just kind of watch my stuff? Because I'm going to lay down on this bench. And I went right to sleep for like 10 minutes. I'm a napper. I nap every day just about. I guess that's the point. The point I'm trying to make is I can sleep anywhere pretty much. And people hate me for that. But I get it. Okay, the answers. The amount of sleep that we need to get, I think is highly individual. I can tell you that um if i was to sleep more than nine hours i'd probably get groggy and i'm i'm almost always happy and in a good mood but no not if i sleep too long i could get away with maybe seven hours and probably function very well i do really well with eight or even nine more than nine for me no less than seven is not that good um but everyone is different. And I believe Walker talks about it in his book as far as the amount of sleep, um, quanti or quantity of sleep. Quality, though, I'm lucky because this, this measures, um, I can look in the Connect app. My, I know my chiropractor is jealous because I get way more deep sleep than he does. <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting a lot more REM and this stuff than he does. It, it's really good if you're able to go into the deep sleep because it's so good for the body good for the brain good for the immune system good for healing good for everything um i actually wrote a chapter about managing your sleep in this book too because it's one of the problems i run into often with people with parkinson's especially but actually people in general um managing sleep effectively chapter six page 49 because you know uh, we're never taught really about sleep and how the eyes work and how the retinas on the bottom of the retinas they're different receptors than on the top and how exposure to natural light in the morning starts your sleep wake cycle but if you do it too early, like if you get up to go to the bathroom at 2 a.m. and you turn on bright lights from above, you might trick your body into creating cortisol, which might say, okay, I'm supposed to stay awake now. And then you can't get back to sleep. Um, there's actually a, a process uh, that Walker talks about, about trying to maximize your sleep just through looking at natural light as soon as you get up uh, outside, like if it's really cold out, you know, just try to do one minute outside, look in the sky. Don't look at the sun, even on a cloudy day though, go outside, look up and take in that natural light. Look on the horizon. If you can, if you're in a city and you can't, well, do your best or go to the top of a building. If you have it available and look as far away as you can, but natural light being outside a couple of minutes, up to 10 minutes, but Seriously, a couple of minutes is fine because the light from above fires up the um, receptors in the retina on the bottom of the retina. Those receptors are the ones that trigger the brain to create cortisol 
to begin your wake sleep cycle. So he, uh, Huberman says that it's about a 14 to 17 hour wake cycle process. Like, you know, no matter what time of year, short days, long days, you know, sunlight, a lot of sunlight, not, not a lot. Either way, start out with natural light, preferably that rather than looking through a window. And then at night, before sundown, before it's dark out, you know, even up to a couple hours before sunset, go outside again for a minute or two, light from above, look into the sky, always avoid direct contact with, you know, looking at the sun, but look at it. And then that light will help to create the production of melatonin naturally within the brain, which begins to set up your sleep cycle. And for many people, this will help for uh, getting to sleep faster, sleeping a little deeper and staying asleep for longer. Um, just one more, one more note on that. Again, you have to get up in the night like I do once or twice and go to the bathroom. Uh, I can make it there in the dark. It's okay. I'm safe. But if you have to have light, you know, be safe, but have your lights low near the floor, like a night light. If you can deal with that safely, use that because the light from above in the middle of the night that could start the wake cycle. Although for me, I doubt that it would. <laughs> so I, I'm sorry, I get so excited. I feel like I'm rambling a lot, gentlemen, but, but these are such good questions. Quality of sleep is so important, probably more important than quantity. If you can get five hours of great sleep, it's better than nine hours of terrible sleep, I'd say. And I'm not an expert, but I believe it's probably true. Yeah. So would you say the judge of whether you've gotten a good night's sleep is the quantity of REM or deep sleep that you've gotten? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I knew the exact answer. Here's one thing I know for sure, though, is that REM sleep is very beneficial for us in every way you can possibly think of, from longevity to energy to being healing, being good for the brain, good for the body, good for the immune system. So that deeper sleep is definitely very, very good. It's, it's where the healing occurs. It's like we reset ourselves. Our body resets best during deep sleep. Um, and now I guess uh, we, can, we can touch a bit on what sort of training method you use for people. Like if someone is a new client of yours, they have Parkinson's. Obviously, everyone has their own issues and you're going to adapt your um, training to whatever they need most. But roughly, what is sort of the recipe or the uh, blueprint that you follow? Yeah, really good questions. And I, I pretty much follow the same general thing with everybody, but it's definitely individualized for their needs and their desires and goals. For example, I have some people who move very, very well and they can jump through a, an agility ladder while others may not even be able to walk through it well. Both, in both cases, they might be cognitively very, very sharp. Um, 
so we're gonna we're gonna take um and just try to take where they're at um I, i'll go into the concepts in a second but we want to take where they're at and figure out where they should be going with this based on like activities of daily living or if they're already moving well and they're not really having a problem getting around and they're functioning well let's say overall what are their goals right what are their goals and then work on that but for some people it could be rolling over it could be walking with more of a symmetrical stride length and stride rhythm adding some arm swing into it because that tends to diminish a lot of times working on posture um uh i didn't write this in the last this recent book i don't know why i guess i forgot there's a thing called um bottom-up training versus top-down training but i do both bottom-up training would be let's start with sensory input so the uh, most sensitive skin on the body is is for most people anyways in 90 whatever percent of people is the plantar skin that's the skin on the bottom of the feet okay that has a, a high 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 the highest density of uh, small nerves and also uh, sensory and mechanical receptors now i'm 60 so i mean i've been wearing shoes and socks for a long time well i was anyways until i learned about this and i learned to go barefoot a lot in a safe environment so i'm barefoot a lot because the advantages of being barefoot in a safe place what i mean is you know you're not at the grocery store barefoot they wouldn't let you in but even if you could go in you might be stepping on you know stuff or there's glass in the parking lot but that's kind of a no-brainer right but in my clinic we'll go barefoot at home barefoot because when you walk barefoot you're you're waking up these nerve endings that have probably gone dormant because of the uh, socks and shoes actually the cushion the more cushion the more sensory inf uh, input information that gets robbed from your your brain because the insole will actually or the the sole of the shoe will actually take in some of that and not deliver all of it through your nervous systems to your brain so you actually don't you won't know you won't have the same sensation of what's under you it could be fine you know it might not be a problem but one thing we know and i have these these videos on youtube uh i could send them to you we did experiments i did a, a little pilot data study in mexico three years ago we checked nine people who had a horrible time walking we added some uh special insoles made by uh, dr emily splickle podiatrist i actually taught for her a lot around england and the usa for quite a while before i started my own teaching thing but i use her concepts with her permission and she actually wrote a piece for the first book but anyways these insoles, we put them in the shoes uh, with no socks. They're actually a, a textured thing. I don't have any here to show you, but it's a very specific texture designed to wake up those nerves in the feet. And I'm telling you, at least 90% of the time, not every, well, so first of all, not everything works for everybody all the time. That's something we must know. But a lot of things work most of the time for most people. These helped these nine people so much to move better all nine had severely diminished or 
minimal sense of smell, because that's another thing that tends to go away in certain movement disorders, especially Parkinson's, MSA, PSP, and Alzheimer's, where sense of smell is diminished. Well, what's cool is the, these, these insoles immediately gave sensory input and, you know, you take them out the door with you. So now you got this barefoot sensation as you're going, you know, to the store or wherever, just walking around all day. And they started moving better. They start running. They start doing exercise. They're much more active. All people, all nine of them, nine months later, had a significantly improved sense of smell. And the reason is because they were exercising on a regular basis, like averaging about five days a week per person for 20 to, 20 to 30 minutes. That's a whole other thing we try to do here is we, we want to create a growth factor in the brain, which Deutsch talks about, called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's a growth hormone, also known as miracle growth for the brain in some arenas. This growth factor is created by the brain, specifically during uh, exercises that uh, are more demanding on heart rate elevation. So if you elevate the heart rate, it doesn't have to be a lot. could be just walking as fast as possible safely for 30 minutes. That'll get it going. It creates it, it circulates it, and it helps to slow the death of dying brain cells. The research is out on this. It's at NYU, it's at Stanford, it's at uh, Toronto, uh, University of Toronto, or Toronto Western, yeah. um, and multiple other places. And not only will it help to slow progression of dying brain cells, it will help to give birth to new brain cells, although it's only in two areas that we know of right now. Number one area is the hippocampus, which is why people with Alzheimer's who are early stage Alzheimer's who do cardio every day, let's say half an hour a day, five days a week for six months, and a study on the Maria Shriver Foundation showed that straight across the board, all of the people had improved memory and cognition because exercise, elevate the heart rate, create BDNF. And so now the hippocampus, which is dying in Alzheimer's, has new brain cells being born. So that's one area. And the olfactory bulb, which is responsible for sense of smell. So, you know, I didn't do brain imaging on these people. We didn't have that kind of budget, but we, we can probably surmise is that these nine people in Mexico, because they were all much more active, got the heart rate up enough to create enough beating enough to create new brains or new cells in the olfactory bulb to help improve sense of smell. Plus, they're just feeling better, moving better, and better quality of life. So it's it's pretty cool stuff. I mean, fascinating. Crazy. I love it. Um, so two more things before we go here. Uh, one, uh, what would be your advice for somebody who was newly diagnosed with Parkinson's MS, MSA, whatever you want? All right. Good question. And I never really completely answered the question before. Bottom-up training, sensory input. Top-down training is neuroplasticity. And in this, just to kind of close out that subject, we're going to be doing things, a multitude of things to help to improve multitasking or dual tasking abilities. Um, I really, if you don't mind, can I just show you something that I think all people can benefit from? 
and I'm one of them. A friend of mine, Dr. Jacob Weiss in uh, Nashville, uh, created this. Uh, we do a ton of things here. We'll do, I call it stacking. So you do something like a focused movement. It could be walking, might be moving sideways, might be moving sideways cross foot pattern. Um, it might be well, any kind of movement, right? But with the movement, we're going to do some type of either hand-eye coordination, throwing a ball and catching it. I don't have it with me, but there's a ball I have with a complete alphabet on it and letters or numbers too. Might pick a topic and say, I'll throw the ball and you tell me something about anatomy or geography or, you know, what's the capital of Canada? Ottawa, great, spell it, right? Spell it backwards. Um, I had a chemistry teacher, we talk about chemistry. Um, so we're trying to think, hand-eye coordination, move simultaneously. Another thing, though, that's super cool, I don't know if you ever heard of the Stroops charts or the Stroops test. This is a really cool thing where this is one of the charts from hand-eye body. Can you see that sort of? Yeah. Okay, so you'll see. I do this brain trending app where they have something similar to this yeah and there are a lot of them out there i mean you don't have to get this although i, I really like it's called hand eye body is the name of the company um but you'll see for example i just had a gentleman in this doing a while ago let's look at the bottom line so let's see moving left to right we've got blue red green blue yellow we also have an arrow on the top of each box so I have a couple of punching bags here, big ones. In this particular case, I had him doing a reverse punch, like a reverse back fist type of punch in the direction of the arrow. So if the arrow goes right, we go, he's hitting right, left, left, as he's saying the word. So it'd be like, blue is a left punch. So it'd be like blue and then red, right? Or we can step it up a notch and say the color of the letters. Okay, well, yellow, blue, red, yellow, red. And that'll mess people up, including me a lot of times. Might even say, okay, whatever the, op the arrow is, we're going to do the opposite. If it's right, you do left and tell me the color of the letters. Or maybe it's jumping a certain way. It depends upon their level of ability. We want to keep them safe, but... By no means do we sit down for the entire workout because, you know, we're not going to get very far, but I make sure they're safe and I'm right by them. I'll dive in and grab them if I have to, but um, if they look like they're going to fall. I mean, there's so many different things we can do to stack movement, cognition, hand-eye coordination. Um, just one more example. I had a lady yesterday who doesn't walk well. We're working on her leg strength. She's 90 years old. She's amazing, cognitively sharp as a tack. But we were doing the same chart. This is one of like 20 charts I have. But she had ankle weights on. So when the arrow said right, she did a leg extension with the right leg, right? And then left leg. And then we did a side raise with a dumbbell side raise or front raise. It can get super creative. So my apologies because I'm rambling a lot, but at the same time, I'm trying to encompass a lot of the concepts we do uh, just so people have an understanding that there's a lot that can be done 
And as Dr. John Rady from Harvard says, he's, he wrote a book called Spark, Go Wild, User's Guide for the Brain. And he's an amazing guy. I interviewed him last year, just so much fun. He says the part of the body that probably benefits most from exercise is the brain, no matter what. Mark, I'm so sorry. You asked me a question. <laughs> <laughs> what was that question again? I asked you. Um, oh, newly diagnosed. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, if they're already moving a lot and doing stuff, don't stop doing that. Do your cardio. Do your strength. Play games with yourself. Find a person to play games with. I mean, you can go on my site, the thepdbook.com. By the way, if anyone's interested in either of these books, if you go to thepdbook.com, you can order them, although it's just continental United States. Um, but it'll link over to Amazon. Actually, you're going to... Right, so Parkinson's Regen is the first book. Parkinson's Empowerment Training is the second book. If you just search for those on Amazon, you can get them in many countries like Canada. And, but my website is thepdbook.com. That has a lot of stuff on it. So people can just go there and use that as a resource for some ideas. If you're not moving, get moving. I mean, we want to do it safely, right? If, if walking is a problem, might want to try to find somebody to help you find a qualified fitness professional, maybe a rock steady boxing coach. A lot of them are real good. It, 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 it's not just boxing. I mean, it might be really depends upon the coach. It's a very good program. And if it's, if you're dealing with Parkinson's, let's say, I mean, you could be anybody and go there and benefit, but I think the, the, the thing is, is whatever you're having problems with, let's say you're facing challenges, whether it's cognition, memory, movement, if there's some way to, you can find it within your means financially, or maybe insurance covers some of it for people. It depends here, you know, in the United States, but uh, find somebody to help you because chances are there are things that can be done to help any situation, any challenge you're having. Be proactive. Be proactive. Try to overcome the challenges. Right. On well, on that note, um, Carl, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, and uh, have yourself a great day. Thanks, well, Carl. Thank you so much to both of you, Josh. Thank you, Mark. Thank you again. It's an honor to be here and. Uh, you're, you're doing great work. Keep up. Cause I listened to all your stuff. It's really good. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Have a good day. You got it. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Did you like this discussion? Make sure to follow the podcast to be notified when new episodes drop.